teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, I'm sure you've probably encountered a school bully or two growing up. Uh, one that I vividly remember was a boy named Jesse. I was in about the third grade. I think he was in the fifth or sixth grade. And he was the guy out on the playground you would always see picking on somebody smaller than him. He would be pulling their hair, taking their lunch money, pushing kids out of the way, taunting them, calling them names, even hanging a few of them on the fence by their underpants. And of course, Jesse had his little posse that would go along and participate in these acts of terror on the playground. Well, one day Jesse was picking on this little kid in the sandbox. He's probably a kindergartner. He's pouring sand on him and, and just uh, terrorizing this little guy. And he was, the kid was just cowering there on the ground as sand is being poured on his back, getting in his eyes, and he was crying in terror. And, you know, normally I tried to stay out of Jesse's way, but when I was watching that, I, that was the last straw for me. And so I decided to step in. Now, before you start clapping or think that perhaps, you know, I decked him and he didn't terrorize kids anymore, uh, let me tell you what really happened. <laughs> when I got between Jesse and that other kid, Jesse just looked at me like, do, do you know what you're doing? And that was when it kind of hit me, probably the first time in my life where I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> well, before I knew it, Jesse's buddies had grabbed me, forced me down onto the ground on my knees while Jesse reared back and kicked me in the face. And uh, it wouldn't have been so bad except he was wearing boots. <laughs> uh, he got in a couple of shots before uh, there was a teacher that he saw heading our way and so he took off. And I can still remember, even to this day, sitting on the ground there and I didn't feel the pain so much really at first because I wasn't afraid of him anymore. My fear had melted into anger. I was angry. I was angry not only at what he did to me, but again, this little kid and all the other kids in the yard, and just all those thoughts flooded in my mind. I just thought, how can this guy keep getting away with this? Even as a seven-year-old, I remember thinking those thoughts. And then came Mr. Ham. He was our school principal, and he was this huge guy, at least to a seven-year-old, he looked pretty huge. He was a stern man, and I watched him as he had come into the schoolyard. He grabbed Jesse and his buddies and hauled them off down to his office. And in those days at the school I was attending, the teachers could administer corporal punishment. And I believe me, Mr. Ham's swats uh, did not feel very good. Not that I knew that from experience or anything, but, you know, I had friends tell me about it. And so as I sat there on the ground, those two shiners that Jesse gave me, and as he was being hauled off to Mr. Ham's office, I have to admit, I did crack a smile. Because uh, my anger at the cruelty of that bully had evaporated in that moment when I realized, you know, justice was finally being done. Jesse was being dealt with in the way that he should, and he wouldn't terrorize us anymore. It turned out he ended up getting expelled. And we know that this world has its fair share of Jesse's, doesn't it? Even entire nations who afflict and bully and oppress, often in unspeakably cruel ways. In our series in the Minor Prophets, there has been one nation in particular up to this point that has been an international bully, one that has been bullying Israel and Judah for a number of decades. It was a cruel nation. It was known for its many atrocities. It was a nation that tormented not only Israel, but also the nations around it. And today from the prophet Nahum, we're going to see somebody step in, like Mr. Ham, to deal with this bully of the ancient Near East. So please turn with me to the prophet Nahum. Nahum is right after Micah. Nahum's an interesting little prophecy. It's a sm small book. It consists only of 47 verses. But it is a powerful message, particularly of what God thinks of sin. In fact, the book of Nahum will see probably one of the most vivid and graphic depictions of the wrath of God found anywhere in the Bible. Prophecy in Nahum begins in verse 1 with the words, The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. 
Now, this introduction is unique with the prophets because essentially here he gives two titles to his book. Normally, a prophet would just speak of a vision or an oracle or a word from the Lord, and that is all he would say. But here, Nahum mentions that this is a vision that he was given, and also it is an oracle. He's identifying here the subject and his prophetic credentials separately. The only personal information that we are given about Nahum is his name and where he was from. He is called an Elkishite here. And I don't think he's referring to that remote town of Elko up way up in Nevada. Actually, nobody's really certain where Elkosh is for sure. Some believe that it is the city of Alkush in Assyria and that Nahum was one of the exiles there. Others say that it refers to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. Because the Hebrew word for Capernaum, Kefir Nahum, which means village of Nahum. I think it simply means village of comfort, for that's what the name Nahum means. It's most likely that Nahum came from Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had been destroyed for almost two generations before Nahum came on the scene. And his prophecy is to Judah. Early church father Epiphanius, and let me show you a little map here, if I've got it. Epiphanius identified Elkosh to be about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. If you can see it in here in this group of small towns, here's Jerusalem. It's believed Elkosh may have been there. And what's interesting about that theory is the fact that Morasheth, does that town ring a bell? We had another prophet from there. Just seeing if you pay attention to these things or not. Morasheth, his name starts with an M. Micah, yes! Micah's hometown is right here, so it's possible that they grew up, or that actually Nahum came much later, but that he's from a place not far from where Micah came from. And Nahum introduces his book as an oracle. That's the word there, the idea is a burden or a, a judgment. And it was a judgment that he was delivering, and who does it say that is going to receive that judgment in verse 1? Nineveh, right? Now, what is Nineveh? You guys remember, Nineveh is a city, and it's a city from... What nation? The empire of Assyria. Here's a picture of Assyria. It's kind of draped over a modern, the modern Middle East. But you can see it's a massive empire stretching from all of the major bodies of water in the Middle East. Nineveh is about 500 miles northeast of Jerusalem. That is a place that uh, became prominent around the 9th century B.C. It has been around before that, but it began to rise in prominence during the days of Elijah and Elisha. And in that rise, Israel became one of Assyria's targets for imperial expansion. In fact, I showed you this last week. This was a picture of this is a picture of King Jehu of Israel. This is about 830 B.C. And here is King Shalmaneser of Assyria. And this was a time Assyria had imposed its will upon Israel. And so Jehu came to Shalmaneser in humility and disgrace to pay him tribute. Remember I mentioned last week from Micah the uh, licking the dust of the earth. And that's a picture here of what Jehu was doing. That's in about 830 B.C. And then came about 60 years after that. A very unique event in Assyria and Israel's history. It was a time that God sent the prophet of Israel to declare judgment upon this nation. Do you remember who that was? Jonah. Remember God sent Jonah. Our old friend Jonah was a little reluctant to go, right? So God encouraged him. You remember that, that whole thing about the large fish that took place? And Jonah's story was very unique. And it was unique not only because God sent a prophet of Israel to a foreign land, and it was unique not only because the fact that Jonah survived in a fish for three days, but it was even more unique due to the fact that as a result of Jonah's proclamation of coming judgment, that God in his compassion saved over 120,000 idol-worshiping pagans in the city of Nineveh. It was a massive revival over the entire community. It's an unbelievable event. But sadly, it took less than one generation before Assyria was back to her violent, imperialistic ways happened during the reign of a king named Tiglath-Pileser. He's the one that had tormented Israel in the King Menahem's day in Israel, uh, forcing them to pay tribute. He ended up coming into the land and taking entire regions captive. 722 BC, the Assyrians completed their assault. 
and they erased the northern kingdom of Israel from the map. Remember, that was God's judgment against them for the continued rebellion against God. And so eventually the Assyrians came in and they took tens of thousands of captives away. They murdered many people, conquered many villages and towns, and they ended up displacing these Israelites and bringing other conquered peoples from foreign lands into Israel. So essentially they completely erased northern Israel's identity as a nation. It was a tragic event But Israel was just one of the many nations that the Assyrians conquered in their expansion in the region. And Judah, being just below the ten northern tribes of Israel, was not secure either. In fact, King Sennacherib, if you'll remember, he was the king that had uh, expanded Assyria's kingdom. And after a huge defeat in Egypt in about 702-703 BC, he marched northward from Egypt and he came in through Judah. Egypt is down in this direction. He came in through Judah and began to pick off city after city after city on his march to Jerusalem. We talked about this when we looked at Micah. If you remember, Micah describes the fact that several of these communities had been taken by the Assyrians. And notice here what town is in the middle of Sennacherib's sweep through Elkosh, again, if it is there, that's the most likely location. Sennacherib writes of this particular invasion. We find it in the Assyrian annals, and Sennacherib tells of how he took 46 cities in Judah and how he carried off over 200,000 prisoners. 2 Kings 18 tells us of these events, and it noted that after the fall of Lachish, uh, which is right here, Lachish was one of the strongest cities in the Judah area, in the, in the nation of Judah, after Lachish fell, that's when King Hezekiah said, oh man, we're in big trouble. He's picking off city after city. And so Hezekiah gathered all the gold and silver he could, even went into the temple, was scraping it off the doors, the gold off the doors of the temple in order to bring it to this king, Sennacherib, to say, you know, would you just take this and go? But after Sennacherib took the mighty city of Lachish, he was emboldened to go after the last stronghold in Judah, Jerusalem. And if Jerusalem fell, that was it. And we remember how that story turned out, right? You remember? Hezekiah went to the Lord. He, he rolled out the, the letter of threats against uh, Judah. And then he cried out to God, God, you're the only one that can do anything about this. And then remember the angel of the Lord that very night swept through Sennacherib's army and destroyed 185,000 soldiers. Now, it was interesting, Sennacherib didn't mention that little thing on his annals, by the way. He skipped that part. <laughs> but it was probably toward, uh, uh, you know, that, that defeat didn't stop the Assyrians, though. The Assyrians continued to plague Judah. In fact, Second Chronicles 33 tells of Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. And during his reign, he was tormented by the Assyrians. In fact, towards the end of Manasseh's reign was the time when the Assyrians came into the land. They actually took the king Manasseh out of the land, put a hook in his nose, and drug him across the desert back into Assyria. That's when Manasseh repented and, and God brought him to salvation. And so Nahum probably came on the scene toward the end of Manasseh's reign. In fact, First key event, this shows some of the key events that I've mentioned. I've already talked about the one in 722 when Israel was defeated. Sennacherib, note here, here are the Assyrian kings, just for your reference. This will be on our website. You don't have to copy these things down. I'm just trying to give you an overall feel of where we're at in the timeline. Here's King Manasseh. It was toward the end of Manasseh's reign that he was taken to Assyria. And it was also toward the end of his reign when Nahum comes upon the scene. The first key event that mentioned, is mentioned by Nahum is in Nahum 3.8. And he describes there how this city called Noamon, who was located by the rivers of the Nile, he describes how that city was, was defeated. There was a conquest. We know this place by the Greek name Thebes. And it was the Assyrians who conquered Thebes in 663 B.C. It was described by King Ashurbanipal. He's noted right, if you know it right here. He is the one who described how they conquered. And it's interesting if you read his description, if if any of you can read cuneiform, you'd be able to read his inscription. I can't, but I'm trusting those who can. But he describes what happened as they took the city of Thebes. And his description matches remarkably well with the description Nahum gives in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3. 
And so it was the Assyrians who destroyed Thebes. So that tells us that the book of Nahum was written sometime after that. Another key event in the book of Nahum is this prediction of the destruction of Assyria. In fact, the whole prophecy centers around that. That destruction took place at the hands of the Babylonians and the Medes in about 612 B.C. You'll notice that event is up here as well. In that time, uh, in fact, in the Babylonian Chronicles, and you can find this in the British Museum, Tablet 21901, tells of what happened. And so these two events give us a window for the prophecy. It occurred sometime after the fall of Thebes in 663 and sometime before the fall of Assyria in 612. And we can't be too sure about exactly when within that window, but it was probably closer to the fall of Thebes because the way Nahum describes it in chapter 3 it's, it's that Thebes is still a, a conquered city. It's a, an event fresh in his mind. About 10 years after it was conquered, the Egyptians took the city back and restored it. So it's probably sometime around 650 B.C. when Nahum wrote. Now I've given this brief overview, this little history lesson of Assyria to make this point. By the time we get to the days of Nahum, toward the end of Manasseh's reign, there has been over a hundred years of severe oppression by the Assyrians upon the people of Judah. Invasions, people being taken away into exile, massive tributes that were being paid, in addition to the many harsh cruelties exacted by the Assyrians upon Judah. In fact, Assyria had developed a reputation as a ruthless people. One Assyrian scholar said that they were the masters of brutality and were among the most notorious nations in history and how cruel they were to others. In fact, the king before Shalmaneser III, he's the one Jehu was bowing before, the king before him had described with with great pride how they would pile decapitated heads of a defeated city. They'd throw it in front of the city gate as a warning to others not to mess with them. They would skin the leaders of that city alive and hang their skins on pillars or on the gate or wrap them on the walls of the city. They would burn women and children alive. They developed an early form of crucifixion where they would hammer a long stake into a person's behind, but they would do it in such a way that the organs would not be punctured. They had figured out how to do it or would just move the organs aside so that they could lift this person on this stake and let them hang there for days, suffering before they died. The Romans had taken that to the next level with the form with crucifixion. In their records, Assyrian kings would often boast about how they would regularly gouge out eyes, sever limbs, cut off tongues, rip off private parts, pour boiling tar on someone's head, bury people alive in city walls, and the list goes on. They were a wicked and evil people. In fact, Nahum ends his book with this statement against the Assyrians. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? That was the last verse in his prophecy. And many nations, including Judah, suffered under these horrific atrocities by the Assyrians. And yes, God had allowed the Assyrians to grow in power. He says in Isaiah 10 how he had used them as a rod of chastisement, particularly on his people for their rebellion. But Isaiah goes on to note the Assyrians went way beyond what God had intended and what he had desired for them to do. They had taken their power and abused it terribly. Beyond that, they blasphemed God, the God who had given them power. If you remember Sennacherib, he laid siege to Judah. And you remember uh, in Isaiah 36 and 37, I think, uh, uh, 2 Kings 18, 19, somewhere in there, when uh, he sent the messenger to Jerusalem and he said, Hey, don't listen to Hezekiah who's telling you to trust in God. I've defeated every God. And this God, Yahweh, can't defeat me either. He's a punk. That was exactly his tone. His son, Esarhaddon, had this rather humble bio inscribed about him in the Assyrian records. He said, I am powerful. I am all-powerful. I'm a hero. I'm gigantic. I'm colossal. I'm magnified. I'm without equal among the kings. And then his son, Ashurbanipal, said this about himself. I, Ashurbanipal, the great king, the mighty king, the king of the universe. 
Now that's a title only for one. But these guys, they were the height of arrogance. Sounds a lot like Nebuchadnezzar when he was glorying in his achievements. And indeed, the Assyrians had built the city of Nineveh into the most glorious and largest, most powerful city on earth in their day. Assyria had become a massive empire. But despite its power, its glory, its wealth, its dominance in the world, it was wicked to the core. And it had afflicted hundreds of thousands, uh, millions of people with their atrocities. These Assyrians had exalted themselves. They used their God-given might to commit brutal and unspeakable acts. And they were wicked through and through. And so when Nahum arrives on the scene, God uses him to say, Assyria, this is enough. You are done. Look with me at verse 2. The manner in which God does this is astonishing. He says, There a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. We'll stop there. Now, you're not going to find many places in Scripture with such emotionally charged language of God's feelings towards evil. Notice how Nahum begins in verse 2, describing God as a jealous, avenging, and wrathful. In fact, he repeats that word avenging three times. He says the word wrath twice, two different synonyms for wrath. God is indeed angry. This is right at the beginning of Nahum's prophecy. And when we see these words ascribed to God, wrathful and avenging, jealous, we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to import our own wrong impressions of these emotions onto what they are when expressed by God. That word jealous here is used exclusively of God in the Old Testament. And it's not referring to him being envious or seeing something that he wants. God doesn't turn green with envy. That's not the idea behind this word. Rather, it's describing this. It's describing God's vigilant commitment to a relationship between himself and his creation. It's like that response you would have with somebody comes in and tries to invade your marriage and steal away your spouse. How would you feel? Or perhaps somebody trying to come into your family and, and to woo your kids away, to turn your child against you. How would you feel about that? God's first commandment on Mount Sinai. Do you remember what it was? After he described that he had delivered them from the land of Egypt, what was the first thing he told them? You shall have no other gods before me. God was committed to the relationship. And he didn't want anything to come in and hinder that. He was jealous for that relationship. He was saying there, I've created you. I've redeemed you. I have delivered you, I sustain you, I cared for you, and I have made this commitment, this covenant, to have a relationship with you, and I don't want anything getting in the way of that. That word for jealous here also carries the idea of a zealousness. God zealously seeks to have complete fidelity in his relationships and to righteousness. But sin is the great adulterer. Sin is the one that lures us away. And in verse 14, he mentions how Assyria had gone back to her pagan idol worship despite the revival that had taken place under the days of Jonah. Notice in verse 2, Nahum also says, The Lord is an avenging God, that he takes vengeance on his adversaries. And again, we're not talking about human vindictiveness here. We're not talking about, you hurt me, so I'm going to get back at you. You're going to pay. That's not the tone here. With God, there is no malice. God's vengeance is, a, is God balancing the scales of justice. He will vindicate any wrong against himself or against his people. 
God's perfectly holy, right? He's not going to let sin go without a response. You see, without God's vengeance, there would be no justice. These Assyrians had committed terrible atrocities. I only, I gave you the PG version of the things that they did. Horrific acts, violence, torture, rape, slavery, cruel and sadistic acts committed. And they flaunted it in God's face. They had no desire to repent. They even gloated about it. So God says that he will avenge those wrongs. And again, notice that word avenge or vengeance is repeated three times here in verse 2 to tell us God is serious about this. Now, considering and thinking about these terms, God being a jealous God, God being an avenging God, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, the next one in verse 2 will really make you feel uncomfortable. For Nahum says the Lord is avenging and what? Wrathful. Literally, he says that God is the Baal of wrath. Baal is a word that means master, Lord. He's saying here, God is the Lord or master of wrath. And if that weren't strong enough, look at the last line of verse 2 where he says, God reserves wrath for his enemies. The ESV says God keeps wrath. But I think the NIV puts it best, the idea here, it says that he maintains his wrath. The idea is that there's a sustained, continuous rage. Those who persist in sin against God, God maintains an ongoing rage against them. Wait a minute, Nahum. Wait a minute, I I know my theology. What about those passages that talk about God's patience? What about those passages like Exodus 34, 6, where God told Moses in that self-declaration of himself that I am a God who is slow to anger? How can you say here that God is sustained in his rage when God said he's slow to anger? Well, notice in verse 3, Nahum anticipated that response. In fact, he quotes from Exodus 34, 6 and saying, God is slow to anger. And indeed, that's true. He's waited over 100 years before acting upon Assyria. But notice in verse 3 that Nahum's also quick to remind what else God said in Exodus 34, verse 7, where he said that God will by no means, and the Hebrew here is emphatic, it repeats the verb twice, he will certainly not leave the guilty unpunished. God is patient, but he's also just. And notice he adds in verse 3, normally you'd expect he's slow to anger and great in mercy, but what word does Nahum put in there? He is slow to anger and great in power. In fact, some scholars said, oh, he made a mistake there, and they actually switched that word for mercy. No, he put power. He wanted to emphasize that in God's patience, that doesn't mean that he lacks the power or ability to act. And that's why Nahum proceeds in verses 3 through 5 to give illustrations of his power. He talks about there in the second half of verse 5. You know when, a, when an army is coming to battle and as the soldiers march ahead and the dust is stirring up around them? That's how he depicts God here as he surges forward to carry out his wrath. This huge dust, this storm, this tumultuous storm surrounds him. Dust clouds is as large as the clouds in the sky. Then in verse 4, God's power extends from the air to the water as he describes his control of the seas and of the weather. And how many examples have we seen in Scripture of God's control over the bodies of water, over rain? Nahum mentions here the places in Israel that were seemingly impervious to drought. Bashan, we've talked about that, and Carmel, Lebanon, these were areas that were rich in agriculture, fertile places, and God says here he could wither them in an instant. Verse 5, God's power extends to land as earthquakes and volcanoes result from just his mere presence. It made me think again of Mount Sinai when God was there and he spoke to the people. Do you remember what was happening? Do you remember what the mountain was doing? It was shaking so strongly, remember, that the people said, Moses, You go talk to him. We don't want him around us. He's scary. So they sent Moses up to the Lord. The mountain quaked violently. And as we look at these verses, verses 2 to 5, Nahum's building up here. He he begins with these strong statements about God's avenging and and that he's jealous and wrathful. And and he describes his power. The intensity is increasing. And then when we hit verse 6, 
a bomb goes off. For just as he began with the declaration of God as jealous and then describes his power and nature, in verse 6, he explodes in describing the great fury of God. He says there, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. He uses four different words in Hebrew here that are synonyms for anger. They're translated here as indignation, burning, anger, wrath. And in this verse, he's doing that. We can almost feel that we're in front of this inferno. And he's saying here that there's nothing or no one that can stop it. It'd be like you standing in front of a forest fire with a squirt gun, you know. This ain't working. That's the picture here, is this, this inferno of fire moving forward, unstoppable. It's a sobering passage. This is sobering. And it's because of these opening verses in Nahum, one scholar, when he began his commentary, said this, We often wish Nahum were not in the canon. The book's almost been totally ignored in the modern church. Another said that no right-minded person can approve of Nahum's sentiments. One scholar called these first six verses of Nahum a hymn of hate and said Nahum is full of malicious joy. Some even called Nahum a false prophet and that he was using his own hatred for these Assyrians and he was putting words in God's mouth that God wasn't really saying these things. So some called him a false teacher. Now are these guys correct? Is, is, Nahum, is Nahum just a, a hateful man like Jonah was? Was he wanting these Assyrians to get theirs and he would even misrepresent God in order to bring that about? Are these descriptions that we see here in these first verses really true of God? Does the Bible really present this kind of God? Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God has indignation every day. A.W. Pink said that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to His love and tenderness. Leon Morris says the subject of God's anger occurs over 600 times in the Old Testament, and there are almost 20 different words that describe anger. Well, that's, that's the God of the Old Testament. He has he's brightened, sobered up a little bit. He's gotten softer in his old age. That's not the God of the New Testament. Was it not Paul who said in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Or didn't Ephesians 6, 5, 6 say, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience? Or in Ephesians 2, verse 3, where he describes all humanity as children of wrath, meaning people under God's wrath? Or even in the book of John, John's Gospel, John 3.36, he said there that he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God abides on him. Well, 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 that's the Father. Jesus isn't like that. Psalm 2.11 says this about Christ. And speaking of the Messiah, it says, Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And the Hebrew word there is this idea of at any moment, it's like a balloon ready to pop. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Or in Luke 12, 49, Jesus himself said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Jesus said that. Revelation 6.16, it describes in the end times the wrath of the Lamb. Or in Revelation 19.15, listen to how Jesus is described upon his return to earth. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And I could go on and on verse after verse, all through, Old Testament and New, that describes the wrath of God against sin, the wrath of our triune God against iniquity. And yet, how often do we talk about this? When's the last dinner conversation your family had on the wrath of God? How many sermons have you heard on this? How popular is this attribute? 
You know, I found it very interesting this week as I was looking through various books on the attributes of God, how several of them did not talk about the wrath of God. It surprised me. But I thought, just why is that? We seem embarrassed about God on this one, or apologetic, or dismissive. We're quick to describe the infinite and perfect love and compassion of God, but not so much when it comes to his wrath. We tend to treat that one as, well. that's, that's, a, that's a little blemish on his record. Just ignore that one. Look at the rest of his resume. And I understand that. This is an uncomfortable topic. These words in Nahum are uncomfortable. And then you have passages like Psalm 5.5, which say that God hates all who do iniquity. He didn't say there he hates iniquity as if it were some inanimate or some animate object. He says he hates all who do iniquity. Or Psalm 11.5, the one who loves violence his soul hates. But, but God is, is a God of love, isn't he? He's not some crotchety old man who loses his temper. Yes, he is not some crotchety old man who loses his temper. But that's not what you should be thinking of when you think of the wrath of God. God is not some person who has these reckless outbursts of emotional and irrational violence as we would often see in humans. J.I. Packer said in his book, Knowing God, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry where anger is called for. Even among men there is such a thing as righteous indignation, though it is perhaps rarely found. But all God's indignation is righteous. Theologian Wayne Grudem said, God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. There's a good definition right there. Intense hatred of evil. I don't know, Tim. This, this just doesn't seem right to think of God this way. I'm really comfortable with this discussion right now. The wrath of God, his fury. Well, consider this for a moment, beloved. What if God did not hate sin? Think about that. What if he looked at, at all those horrific acts that the Assyrians committed and he just said, yeah, you know what? War does that to a person. These things just happen. What about all the atrocities committed by other nations, the Nazis, the Khmer Rouge, the regime of Stalin, and so many others? What about Charles Roberts, the guy I mentioned last week who entered a schoolhouse in Pennsylvania and executed five children by shooting them in the back of the head? What about Ariel Castro, who imprisoned three young women for more than 10 years and did perverse, unspeakable things to them? One of them he took when she was 14 years old. What about 13-year-old Susan Ithungu, who was beaten and starved by her father because she became a Christian, and so he locked her up in a closet? She was 45 pounds when they found her. What about Pastor Umar in Uganda, who had acid poured on his face and on his back by a group of Muslims because of his faith in Jesus? What about a group of men I read about last week who gang-raped a four-year-old girl? How do you feel about that? What if God simply shrugged his shoulders at that? Oh, well, people just do these things. Would that be a loving God? Would that be a good God? A God who isn't bothered so much when his children are beaten and tortured because they love Jesus? A God who is not angered by grown men taking a small child? Would that be a God you'd want to worship? Beloved, I find comfort in the wrath of God. That he hates sin with the utmost hatred. And that his sin, our sin does incite his indignation. And that he will respond. And that's really the purpose of Nahum's book. Is to bring comfort. Look at verse 7 in chapter 1. Nahum says this. 
The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Now, now hold on, Nahum. Wait a minute. <laughs> you just gave these passionate, charged, emotionally charged verses about God's wrath and anger, and all of a sudden you say, the Lord is good. What's going on here, Nahum? How do you go from the burning fire of his anger to the peaceful serenity of the Lord's goodness? Are you talking to Nineveh here? No, Nahum is not talking to Nineveh. He didn't write this prophecy for Nineveh. It was about Nineveh, but not for Nineveh. Nahum was addressing it to someone else in order to bring them comfort. He reminds them that the Lord is good, and we see that good in his wrath against sin. In contrast to those who take refuge in him, in verse 8, he describes that God's enemies will experience something different. Look at verse 8 with me. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble, completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Nahum here uh, begins to describe the details of Nineveh's destruction. He gave in the first few verses an overview of the motivation on God's part to move and act in judgment. And here he begins to unfold that judgment, in particular that Nineveh is going to be judged. Now Nineveh is not directly referenced in these verses, but notice in verse 8 that phrase, complete end of its sight. In the NAS, in the Hebrew, it's literally the complete end of her place. Her there refers back to Nineveh in verse 1. Again, a feminine gender is often used for for places, cities. But then in verse 9, Nahum addresses an individual. For notice there he says, you. That's in the masculine singular in Hebrew. If it was a reference to Nineveh, he would have used the feminine gender. And then look in verse 11. He goes back to the feminine gender when he says, from you, feminine has gone forth. And then he says, one, a certain individual. What he's describing here is he's speaking most likely when he uses the feminine of Nineveh or Assyria, when he uses the masculine singular, he's speaking of the king of Assyria, an individual who's come out of Assyria, who has plotted against the Lord and against his people. There have been several of them, but Sennacherib is one that comes to mind and his plotting to take over Judah and the words that he spoke against God. That's probably who he's speaking of here. He's the one who openly mocked God when he tried to invade Jerusalem. But here in verses 9 and 10, Nahum's reiterating that, that God's going to make a thorough end of Nineveh, that he will judge them. And it says there that, this, that the distress will not rise up twice. He means, I will judge, and there won't be a second time because they're going to be gone. They will be consumed like dry stubble, he says. They will easily be defeated like a, fighting a drunken soldier. And then look at verse 12. Here's where the Lord turns his attention back to Judah. Thus says the Lord, though they, speaking of Assyria, are full, at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, God's speaking to Judah, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. And by the way, these verses tell us that that's probably closer to the 663 date because the Assyrians still have strong control over Judah and that control dissipated historically over time. Then verse 14, the Lord has issued a command concerning you. He switched back to Assyria now. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off an idol image from the house of your gods. I will prepare you for, uh, prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Here God tells his people, I'm going to break the yoke of the Assyrians that has you in bondage. He would no longer allow them to afflict Judah. He had allowed them to, to be in affliction because of their rebellion, but now he says Assyria no longer will do that. And then for effect, he moves from speaking to the people of Judah in verse 14 to speaking again back to those in Nineveh, particularly the Assyrian king, because again the you there is in singular form, masculine singular. God is saying here in verse 14 to the king, at that time it was probably Ashurbanipal, because he was the king in Nahum's day. 
He says there that your name will no longer be perpetuated, or literally, your name will not be sown again. That was just a descriptive way to say your line has ended. And in fact, that is exactly what's happened. what happened in the reign of his sons. That's when Assyria was taken. And then comes the key verse of the chapter, verse 15. Behold, it's always a word in Hebrew, gets your attention. Hey, hey, listen to what I'm about to say. Behold, on the mountains of the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. And in this verse, we see why Nahum wrote this message and to whom he wrote it. It's the people of Judah. Again, it's an oracle about Nineveh, but it was given to the people of Judah. And it was given to them to tell them, you know that brutality and the cruelty, the oppression that you have been experiencing under these wicked Assyrians? I'm going to bring you relief. It's not a coincidence that Nahum's name means comfort. In fact, it's the same word we heard from Pastor Mbewe last week in his wonderful message from Isaiah 40. Remember, it began with the words, Comfort, O comfort, my people. It's the same word, Nahum, there. And that comfort in Isaiah 40 was found upon the sovereignty and omnipotence of God. Here in Nahum, that comfort is found in the wrath of God against the wicked. Psalm 58.10 says, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will surely say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. And Psalm 96.11 declares unashamedly these words, Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. These passages and, and many others reflect the same sentiment that we find here in Nahum. To rejoice that God will vindicate his righteousness, that he will deal with all sin and evil in our world that he will make things right, that he will balance the scales of justice, that his enemies will see justice, and that the maligning and abuse of his name and his people will cease. And isn't that a good thing? And beloved, it, it is God's wrath that moves him to do that. And so we shouldn't cringe when we read of the wrath of God, but if you're his child, you should find comfort in it. It's not a comfort that gloats, but it's one that is humbly grateful. There's much more to be said on the wrath of God, but we're out of time. We'll look at it more next week. Such an important attribute that gets neglected. But in closing this morning, let me just leave you with one more thought regarding God's intense hatred for sin and in light of that. And that is that the wrath of God makes the gospel precious. That God is willing to forgive the sin that he loathes so much. And that the forgiveness was made possible how? Did God just ignore his wrath? He poured it out on Jesus. Jesus experienced that fury, the burning anger that we saw in Nahum verse 6. Jesus was willing to do that. 1 John 2, 2 says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That's a word that simply means that Jesus' sacrifice, his atonement, his payment for sin satisfied the wrath of God. And for anyone who puts his or her faith in Christ, who cries out to be forgiven, who wants to turn from the sin in their life, who has a desire to repent, to follow Christ. God's wrath no longer abides on you. What a gift. His wrath was fully satisfied in Jesus' perfect death. And what makes that precious for the gospel is knowing how deep, how infinitely deep his wrath is. And seeing that act on the cross shows you how infinitely high his mercy and kindness and love is. 
And it's my prayer that, that no one leaves this room without seeking the forgiveness of Christ. Don't leave here until you have put your complete trust in him. I want you to remember the words of John when he said, He believes in the Son, has eternal life. <laughs> what a wonderful blessing. But, John says, he who does not obey the Son, he who does not demonstrate the fruit of having the Holy Spirit in his life because Christ has forgiven him, he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let that not be you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, this is a sobering topic. Lord, it's, it's one that we often find difficulty thinking about. But Lord, I, I am grateful that you do hate sin. I am so grateful that you poured out your hatred on your son and not us. And that, Lord Jesus, you were willing to bear the full wrath and fury of the Father because of your love and compassion. And Lord, I pray, God, please let no one leave here this morning without seeing the seriousness of their sin before you and that your anger abides on them, but, but only, only if they refuse to put their faith in your Son. Lord, I can thank you for such a wonderful gift in the cross the instrument the Assyrians used for hate and torture and evil, you used to save humanity. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd please stand, I'm going to read what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, or 4. <clears throat> he gives these words, They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Amen.